Beautiful song. Beautiful description of it in sign language as well. All right. Join me in Matthew chapter 5 and that neighborhood. We'll begin with seeing if there are things from this morning that you would like to ask about or to comment on from our study together this morning. Anyone with anything you'd like to maybe probe further into or inquire about? Questions? Discussion? Kind of highlighting what we talked about. That character of light leads to a particular conduct, demonstrates itself with compassion, lives a life that is in contrast, light versus dark, and then always laboring toward one cause, and that is glorifying God. But everything that is done is to the Lord's glory. Questions about those things we've talked about this morning? The first part of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. It's the list of the blessed are. And well, yes, and it's even deeper than that. It's a state of blessedness with God where the person is actually to be envied for the position that they are in. Uh, essentially, for the Jewish person, they would say, I wish I was in that state. Or I wish I was that person. So, yeah, that's good. We'll be really jumping into that this coming Sunday when we roll backwards and go through the Beatitudes because they kind of lay out the foundational character of the convert, the follower of Jesus, those who've been made new creations. Good point, Bill. All right? Others? Eighteen. Good. I'm going to do a whole message on that. Essentially what Jesus is stating there, that He is not contrary to or a contradiction to or a break away from the law and its intent, that He's actually the embodiment and the fulfillment who is going to bring a people into the ability to do what the law actually demands. Because Jesus describes the law later. Someone says, what, are, what is the great command in the law? And Jesus said, well, the greatest command is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two things hang the whole of the law and the prophets. Jesus is going to change us on the inside so that the intent of the law is actually fulfilled by us because we've had our hearts changed. So that's, that's the essence of that passage. All of the law is going to be perfectly fulfilled first and foremost in Jesus and then in the redeemed community because he puts a new heart in us that enables us to fulfill the demands of the law. Good, Good question.
I love the Sermon on the Mount. I'm really looking forward to it. Any other questions you might have about what we shared this morning? Got something kind of brewing? It's okay to ask about it. Well, yeah, um, in the Old Testament, the motif of light represented several things. It represented truth, salvation. When you go back and you just study light in the Old Testament, you say, okay, I want to know what does light represent in the Old Testament. Um, It's revelation, truth, salvation. It's God's presence. It's God's blessing. It's all of these things that are what we would summarize as good. And frequently in the Old Testament, you'll hear light and dark, good and evil. And so light is this picture of the embodiment of God and His truth and His blessings and His revelation because light reveals. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of that primarily from Isaiah 61. So let's go there for just a second. In Isaiah 61, you have the setting... That And I didn't have time to flesh it out this morning, so I'm really glad you asked about it tonight. And uh, we'll, we'll jump into this. Isaiah 60 is this breakdown that has come in Isaiah that has brought God's judgment. You have Isaiah chapter 59 with the separation from God because of their iniquities. You have this final confession of their wickedness and sinfulness in Isaiah 59. And then you have this promise of a covenant at the end of 59. And then in chapter 60, it's like this glorious unfolding of the Messiah. And it says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. So the command is to shine, but what they're going to shine is this one who is your light. And then it says, And the glory of God has risen upon you, for behold, darkness will cover the earth, deep darkness the people, but the Lord will rise upon you. His glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to... So here's the salvation of the Gentiles. Nations will come to your light. And so... This light is a light that has come, that is the glory of God, and it enters you in such a way that you shine. So it, it, it indwells you, it inhabits you. And then Isaiah 61 explains it. Chapter 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and to the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes. Okay, who read this passage? Actually, it wasn't John. 
It was Jesus himself. This is when they got so angry with Jesus because the reading of Isaiah the prophet in the tabernacle, I mean, in in the synagogue that day was this passage. Jesus got up. He reads this passage. He closes it and he says, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he's calling back to arise. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord is among us. I am the Messiah. And so all of that comes together in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew carries so much of the reference to Isaiah. And uh, from Isaiah 9, a direct quote, and then many references, this idea of comforting those who mourn, that's right there in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. We're going to talk about what that mourning actually is If you read with us through Ezekiel and you were with us on Wednesday night this past week, we gave you a hint to that about what that morning is. It's pretty shocking when we get to touch on that this coming Sunday, what that morning actually is. And so here he is, the Messiah, and he is the light. And so when we are the light of the world because the Messiah inhabits us, we are the people of God shining the radiance of the glory of the Messiah to the dark world around us. Even though the world is covered in darkness, here we are shining the radiance of His glory. Good question, Daniel. You want to follow up on that or did that take care of it? Okay, good, good question. Yes, sir. They want to kill him. (laughs) They didn't take too kindly to that, did they? Yeah, that's right, because of the lack of faith that they had in him. It's really interesting. Their their response to his messianic claims was that they wanted to kill him. Yeah, that's exactly right. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing that the authority that we speak of is something only experienced by Jesus' nutrition. If you'll go and you'll read when Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus' words were, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The only thing that will change our appetite for the things of the world is to be well fed on the Word of God. That's our defense and what gives us that authority to resist and overcome evil. Okay, any any other follow-up on this morning that you want to ask about before we jump into something for tonight? I want to recommend a book to you. Um, Dr. Quarles actually wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And I think you ought to own it. If you want to have one good work, um, I think that this is the one good work you ought to own. It's called 
Sermon on the Mount, Restoring Christ's Message to the Modern Church by Chuck Quarles. It's on Kindle now, so if you're a Kindle user, how many people use Kindle or something like it? That's pretty good. Okay. How many of you don't know what Kindle is? A couple of you? Okay. All right. I understand that. Kindle is a reader where you buy books that are online, and you can read them on your computer, or you can read them on a tablet, or an iPhone, or an iPad, and you can carry them with you, and they actually have a little, a little electronic device that's simply called a Kindle. It's a little bitty thin uh, reader that stores your books on there, and you can carry that thing around with you and read your books. And you don't have to be online to do it. You can download all the books to it. So I recommend that if you, uh, if you don't like carrying a lot of books around. Um, Dr. Quarles points out, and rightly so, something that other scholars have noticed as well, but he does a really good job of setting up the background on the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm going to spend a few minutes on that tonight. Because I think there are a couple of things that we need to talk about about the Sermon on the Mount. You'll hear me reiterate them many times. But I want to first jump into Matthew chapter 3 and bring out something that I think is very important. Um, when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the character, the conduct, the compassion, the contrast and the cause for which all of those things are lived, this is not something that we say, we hope that you'll be like this. It's very, very important that you don't walk into the Sermon on the Mount and go, okay, here's the deal. This is what I want to try to be like. When we send groups to Ecuador... um, We have different people pick them up when they get there. And we have one particular guy that does a lot of picking up for us. And he picks up what we call singles, not people who aren't married, but people who, because of their schedule, have to fly in by themselves, or sometimes doubles. They have to fly in as two of them together. Because of their schedule, they can't leave when the group leaves, so they have to get into Ecuador. So they fly into this country that many of them have never been to, and go into an airport where the people don't speak their language. It's a very scary experience the first time you ever do it. Those of you who've traveled abroad, you kind of know that feeling. And if you're ever doing that by yourself or just in a very, very small group, it's even more fearful. And uh, so we tell them uh, that we've got this guy that's going to pick you up. His name is Guillermo. And when you see Guillermo, the first thing you're going to think is he looks like a criminal. And I tell folks, if the guy picking you up doesn't look like a criminal, don't get in the car with him. Because that's the first thing. Guillermo looks like a criminal. He's got this really scraggly beard. He's got this kind of long hair. He's got these glasses that are kind of tinted, a little bit kind of like amber or yellow. He he looks like he just got out on prison release. He wears on one arm a fake tattoo. This, this sleeve that you pull up that looks like his whole arm is tattooed. So that when he's driving through town, he looks really tough because he's got this fake tattoo hanging out the window. He's just a really, he wears this vest that looks like it was recovered from an A-Team episode where it's got, it's just kind of a canvas vest and it looks like he's got guns, missiles, and rockets all stored in there. Okay? And um, he just looks rough. So we give this description of this guy so that when... Our people see him, they say, 
That's Him. We don't want Him to get picked up by the wrong person. And so we give a description beforehand so that when they see Him, they can identify Him. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It is a description of a Christian. So that when you see him or her, you can say, by their fruits, you will know them. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's laying out the description of the new covenant people of God. Now, how important is this description? Well, come with me to John, excuse me, Matthew chapter 3. I'm thinking of John the Baptist. And Kevin, I think this is the reference you were thinking of just a minute ago because it's such a similar passage and it's an Isaiah passage as well. John comes preaching, verse 4 of chapter 3, wearing camel's hair, leather belt about his waist, food was locusts and wild honey. No church would ever hire this guy. He is not going to be your next youth minister. Can you imagine him showing up? Locust, wild honey, kind of, he's on the vegetarian thing going on. He's got the camel skin and he's got the leather belt and you're saying he won't work here. All right. So here he is. He's preaching and he's out by the Jordan. He's baptizing. Verse 7, pick up with us. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you're a bunch of snakes. Isn't that a great way to welcome people to your gathering? <laughs> you brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say of yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Now, this is an important illustration. I don't know if you've ever cut a tree down, chainsaw or axe or any other device, but here's kind of how you do it. Uh, you go up to the tree and you put your equipment down and then you step back from the tree and you size it up for several things. First off, you make sure, is this the right tree that I'm supposed to cut down? Not a good idea to cut the wrong tree down, okay? Second, you size it up to see if there's reason to cut it down. Is this the right tree? Is it dead? Is it dying or whatever? And then third, you, you kind of size up which way is it going to fall when I cut it, Okay. Throwing the axe at the root of the tree was marking it for chopping down. And then you step back and make sure. And he said that God had come in and at the individual level and Israel at the corporate level, God had dropped his axe at the root of the tree and he had stepped back to size up the tree. And this was the last chance for Israel. So, he says, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This idea of a fruitless Christian is a fallacy. It is a lie. It is a deceptive the idea that you can be redeemed and remain in fruitless behavior is not anywhere 
in the Bible. It just doesn't exist. In fact, he reiterates it by saying this. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, it's important to locate what fire means in this passage. I remember up in North Georgia, they had a fire-baptized holiness church. Because they thought that the baptism of fire was a reference to the tongues of fire at Pentecost. But in this passage, it is not. No, it's judgment. He's just said, we're going to cut you down and throw you into the fire. And the one who's going to do it is the Messiah who's going to baptize you either with his spirit or with his fire. To reiterate that, go to the next verse. He says, And his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with what? Unquenchable fire. So when you hear the baptism of fire here, this is not the tongues of fire at Pentecost and name your church fire-baptized holiness church because the fire-baptized church is not the one you want to be in. You want to be in the Spirit-baptized church because the fire-baptized church is going to be burnt because it's not real. It's not genuine. And so when we get into the Sermon on the Mount, we don't get a checklist of things to say, I'd like to be this, I'd like to be this, I'd like to work on that. We get a description of what God in Christ is forming us to be, and we better take it very, very seriously. Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he returns to John the Baptist's words and says, By your fruits, by their fruits, you will be known. And those fruits are fruits in keeping with repentance that Jesus is going to share in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. None of us attain this to perfection. That's not what is stated in the Beatitudes. But all of, the, all of us who are redeemed possess these qualities to an influencing degree in our life. So that though we are not at the state of perfection, What can be said of us is that our lives are being moved in a direction. Now, having said that, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, I need to tell you three things and I have four minutes to do it. So you're going to get the very quick version and then we'll we'll pick up on it and flesh it out a little bit more later. All right. As Matthew sets up the Sermon on the Mount, and if you want to read in depth about this, Uh, Dr. Quarles does a really good job in his book of of fleshing this out. Three things are happening. First, Jesus is leading the new Exodus, and he is the new Moses. The whole picture of how Matthew is set up is to show that. He is the new Exodus, and he's leading... Excuse me, he's the new Moses, he's leading the new Exodus. He's bringing a people out 
Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, He will save His people from their sin. The parallels that are in Exodus and in uh, uh, Matthew are the parallels of the slaughter of the male children surrounding the birth of Moses and of Jesus. The calling out of Egypt, where a direct quote that is in the Old Testament where it says, those who seek his life are dead. It is said about Moses coming back out, the Pharaoh who seeks your life is dead, and Jesus coming out of Egypt into the, the regions of Judea because the king who sought his life is dead. The phrase that says Jesus went up onto the mountain in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, is an exact duplicate of the statements of Moses going up onto the mountain. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which is what the people of Jesus' day would have read, when it's translated into Greek, all three times that Moses went up onto the mountain, the language is identical in Matthew 5.1, Jesus went up onto the mountain. Moses went up to give the law. Jesus comes up to give this description of the character of the community of the new Israel. All over the work of Jesus is that He is the promise of this one prophecy. Moses said this, God will raise up a prophet like me. Stephen, when he preaches his sermon that leads to his death, compares the work of Moses and the work of Jesus, saying that the people did not understand that it was Moses who came to deliver him, and he parallels that with Jesus' death, that the people did not understand that Jesus came to deliver them. And so Jesus is a new Moses leading the people on a new exodus. Second. Jesus is the picture of the new creation. One of the most outstanding things that Chuck brought in his commentary, in his research and the research of many other scholars, is the opening line of the book of Matthew is a restatement and actually reads the book of Genesis. When you read it in Greek, it reads the book of Genesis, which means the book of origin. The exact same phrase is used in Genesis 2, 4 and 5, 1 to speak of Adam, and Jesus is the new Adam of the new creation. When the Spirit is hovering above Him like a dove, it is the exact language of the Old Testament when the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep in creation in Genesis chapter 1. It's the same identical language in Greek. When you read the Greek version of the Old Testament, which that's what those people would have been reading, and you read what is written in Matthew, you've got this picture, Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. And He is going to bring us what Paul says. What does he say? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which the Father has prepared beforehand. He's the new Moses leading the people out of the bondage of slavery, of sin, the new exodus, He is the new creation. And finally, just quickly, He is the new covenant. By the way, 
when your Bibles were named Old Testament and New Testament, we think that testament means book, but the word testament actually is the word covenant. You and I would do better in modern language to call our Bibles the Old Covenant and the New Covenant because that's what the word testament actually is. It's a covenant. It's not a book. I grew up thinking the New Testament was a book, but it's the New Covenant. Jesus is the picture of the New Covenant, and there's so much language in Matthew leading up to that that would show us the New Covenant. Um, I don't have time tonight. I want to be a good steward of our time this evening. So what I'm going to do is close with just a couple of things that I want to remind you of that we talked about this morning that are really important. When we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about a description by which you can identify a Christian. That's what we're talking about. That's the point of it. This is the new covenant people. These are the new creation people. These are the new Israel being led out of the bondage of sin into the promised land by the new Moses. And they're different. You see, in the old covenant, when God led them out, they were rebellious and disobedient. Why? Because their hearts had not been changed. In the new covenant, they're submissive and obedient. Why? Because their hearts have been changed. And so when we read this, we're reading the description of how to identify a Christian. Just like when we send those people to Ecuador and we say, look, here's what he looks like. He's got this fake tattoo thing on his arm. He's got these glasses. He's got this scraggly beard. He looks like he's going to mug you. He's got this vest that looks like it was kept from a war. And, he, and he, he looks like he's bearing arms and he really actually is. And so that's the right guy. Get in the car with him. And so when you read the New Testament, excuse me, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it says this is the believer. You can follow their example and you can listen to them. And that's what it means to be the light. To be the light is to have the character of Christ in us that leads us to such a significantly different conduct driven by compassion that it is a contrast to everything else around us so that when people experience a few minutes with us, they say, To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we close tonight, we we entrust ourselves to Your care. We know, we do know, that only by Your Spirit, sweet, sweet Spirit, only by Your Spirit can these things be. The new birth, the change, Blessed are those who mourn. They should be comforted. We hear these words and we now know you're describing the Christ-like change in believers. Grant it now that as a result of this, we would surrender fully to the Spirit's work in us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So that the world can say, we know them 
abideth there fruits. In Jesus' name, amen.